Hello, welcome, greetings to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God. Welcome. I invite you to turn in God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. It's one of those uh, well-known passages, Jesus' encounter with the scholar, uh, ruler Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, let's hear God's word together. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you through our Savior and High Priest, Jesus Christ. Uh, We confess that you are the source of all life. Father, we live and breathe because you have bestowed upon us the gift of life. We thank you for another day of life. And Father, even as you give physical life, you give spiritual life through your Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that before we placed our faith, faith in your son Jesus, we were running far from you, God. We were rebels resisting your will, incapable of responding to you in obedience and love. But you, Father, graciously intervened and breathed life into us. Thank you, Father, for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. We ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to work in us, to put sin to death more and more, and to be conformed to the image of your Son more and more. Uh, We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be pleased to grant us ears to hear and eyes to see as we look at the Word of God today. Please use this Word to change us and uh, reflect the will and character of God more and more. Amen. So there was a famous uh, 18th century preacher by the name of George Whitfield. He was a very gifted speaker, and uh, Benjamin Franklin would often go to hear uh, George Whitfield preach. Now, Benjamin Franklin wasn't a Christian. He was just impressed by his uh, speaking prowess. Uh, but uh, Benjamin Franklin made it a point to not bring any money with him when he would hear Whitfield preach. Because every time he had money he would inevitably give it to whatever cause Whitfield was promoting. He was that good. And so he resolved, I'm not going to bring any money with me. My pockets will be empty when I go to listen to Whitfield speak. Uh, But ironically, he would just turn around to the people around him and ask him to borrow money so he could 
give uh, to the causes advocated by Whitfield. Uh, now, one of, in fact, the central, the characteristic theme in Whitfield's preaching was, you must be born again. That was the great drumbeat of his preaching. You must be born again. And a woman came to Whitfield on one occasion and said, why do you emphasize as you do, you must be born again? To which he res responded, because, madam, you must. Uh, now, that dogged emphasis on the need for the new birth, on the need for spiritual life from above, reflects simply the teaching of Jesus. That's what Jesus teaches us and te taught Nicodemus, uh, that we need life from above if we are going to respond to God. This morning, we'll note three things in this passage. First, the new birth is necessary. You must be born again. Second, the new birth makes itself known. Third, the new birth is purchased by Christ. So, the new birth is necessary. There's a very distinguished individual in Jesus' day, Nicodemus, a very learned scholar, distinguished theologian. He was also one of the Sanhedrin, one of the uh, Jewish leaders of the day, part of the council that oversaw uh, life in Palestine and Israel. And this uh, rather impressive individual comes to Jesus by night. Uh, possibly that phrase by night, it was literally night, of course, but it might also be a symbol of spiritual darkness, lack of understanding. John uses the phrase that way at least two other times. It's probably the case here. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, we know that you are a teacher from God. Now, that's true, but it's insufficient. Jesus is a teacher sent from God, but he's so much more than that. He is, of course, himself the eternal Son of God and Messiah. Nicodemus says, we know you're a teacher, and the reason we know you're a teacher is because of the signs that you do. Verse 2, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's saying, in effect, Jesus, we have evaluated the data, and we have come to a conclusion about you. You are the teacher. We, we know this about you. We can see this about you. Now, implicit in that statement is the idea that Nicodemus has within himself the capacity uh, to know what is spiritually true and false. Right? He has the ability in himself to distinguish between spiritual truth and spiritual error. We've evaluated and we know. But it's precisely that assumption of spiritual autonomy that Jesus challenges in his response in verse 3. Nicodemus says he knows certain things about Jesus, he sees certain things about Jesus, but Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot perceive or experience the kingdom of God. You claim to see and have insight, but I'm telling you, unless a miracle happens, a miracle from above, born again or born above, both ways of translating that, unless a miracle happens, you can't see anything and you can't enter into God's kingdom. God's kingdom here refers to his life-giving rule. We experience his life-giving rule in this age, those who trust in Jesus, and then we will experience it fully in the age to come. And Nicodemus would have understood Jesus to be saying, nobody is going to experience resurrection life, the life of the world to come, who is not born again. But Nicodemus doesn't understand. Born again. Uh, and so verse 4 functions as a request for clarification. Nicodemus responds in a crassly literal way to show that he doesn't get what Jesus is saying. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
That's what Jesus clarifies in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So born again, verse 3, is further clarified as being born of water and Spirit. The question is, what does that mean? Um, the, The crucial detail we should note is the fact that Jesus expected Nicodemus to know what he was talking about. Verse 10. Jesus answered him, are you not the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? So clearly Jesus' expectation was that Nicodemus would understand what he's saying. And the reason for that is because Nicodemus was familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, if you know the Old Testament scriptures, you should know what that means. So where in the Old Testament do we find these two ideas brought together, the idea of water and spirit? Well, there are actually several places we could go, but the most significant is Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. Here's what God says to his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be, and be careful to obey my rules. That's the background. That kind of background is in view here. Uh, Jesus is saying that we need to be inwardly washed of our pollution and corruption. The Holy Spirit needs to do a, a work deep in our souls whereby this hardened rebellion and opposition to God is taken away, and we are given a heart that desires God that loves God and trusts God. We need to recognize that without the miracle of the new birth, without the Holy Spirit performing this in our souls, we have a hardened opposition to God and the things of God. We do not by nature love God. In fact, we rebel against him. Uh, We don't by nature trust him and submit to him. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter two that we are spiritually dead dead in our sins and trespasses. No ability whatsoever to take a step forward towards God. That's why we need to be born again. The Apostle Paul also writes in Romans 8, 7 through 8, the mind that is set on the flesh, flesh here is life without the Holy Spirit, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's a description of life apart from Jesus. Without the miracle of the new birth, without Jesus, we are incapable of pleasing God. We are incapable of loving God, submitting to his will, and trusting him. That's our plight. And we are powerless to change ourselves. If we're going to be changed at all, the initiative has to come from outside, from God himself. Jesus amplifies and says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. So to be born of flesh is to be born in the ordinary way, to be born of parents. If you're born of the flesh, you have merely earthly life. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That which has its origin in the Holy Spirit has spiritual life, not just earthly life. Through the miracle of the new birth, the Holy Spirit imparts a principle of spiritual life to us so that we increasingly desire the things of God, love God, 
and trust God. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're a distinguished theologian, biblical scholar, very prominent in Israel. But all of those achievements mean exactly nothing when it comes to entering the kingdom of God. You need something that you can't produce for yourself. You need the spiritual life that only God can give. So there are two implications of this passage. First of all, Jesus underscores that man is utterly helpless. Apart from Jesus, we have no capacity whatsoever to take any steps towards God. We can't lift a finger for our spiritual good. We are dead. So uh, an analogy for our situation apart from Jesus uh, might go like this, right? We are, we're sick patients in a hospital, and the doctor has to come in and give us a bit of medicine so that we get better. Uh, someone might describe it that way. The problem with that analogy is it assumes that there, there's still a measure of life left, right? You can reach out your hand, pick up the medication, take it, and feel better. That's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is you're a corpse rotting in a grave. You're dead, incapable of any motion whatsoever. You can't lift a finger for yourself. And God, of his own initiative and grace, has to show up and breathe life into you so that you can respond, so your eyes can be opened, so you can see your guilt and need for a Savior, so that you can trust in Jesus. The initiative lies with him. Conversion, and specifically this new birth, is the raising up of the dead to new life. The initiative was with God, not with us. Here's how the theologian R.C. Sproul puts it. Uh, he speaks of a man at the bottom of the sea. God dives in the water, and he takes that dead man, that corpse from the bottom of the sea, and brings him out onto the dry land. Then he leans over and gives him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. He breathes life into that man, and that man is restored from the dead. The first step, the initiative, the being made alive from the dead is the work of God and the work of God alone. That's our condition apart from Jesus. We are so powerless we can't even ask for help. God must take pity on us and show up and breathe life into us. Now how you respond to that truth reveals a great deal about your spiritual condition. If you respond to the truth of your total inability to reach out to God by saying, oh come on, surely it's not that bad. I know there are some dark patches in my life, but I'm not dead. Still some goodness. That's the way you respond. What that reveals is a measure of spiritual pride. You don't see the depth of your need or the depth of divine grace that has been given in Jesus Christ. How should we respond? Well, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, the proper response to your total helplessness is to abandon all hope in yourself and cry out to God for mercy. The proper response is to cast yourself entirely on the mercy of God and say, God, I can't do anything for myself. Help me. Do for me what I can't do for myself. Breathe life into me. And the testimony of Scripture is that he will. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not a bad thing to despair of yourself if that despair drives you to cast yourself on the mercies of God. God will find you and bring life to you where you are. But if you do know Jesus as, a, as your Savior, then recognizing that you were once dead, hostile to God, and incapable of changing yourself, and that God in his infinite grace 
has come to you and has roused you from the grave and given you spiritual life. If you realize that God has done that for you, then your response should be one of unqualified praise and adoration and thanksgiving. God is good. Uh, His grace has come to us unasked for, undeserved, but it's come to us nonetheless. It's a free gift by which he has, through his initiative, brought, brought us from death to life. So praise him, adore him, and live for him. It's the first thing to see, our helplessness. Second thing to see, though, is as a result of the new birth, as a result of this inward purification and the impartation of life, we have the power to live a new life for the glory of God. If you're a Christian, your relationship to sin is not now what it once was when you didn't know Jesus. When you didn't know Jesus, you were a slave to sin. But now that you know Jesus, you have new life in you, you have a new heart, you have new desires, desire to submit to God and love him and grow in your knowledge of him, and that means it is possible for you to walk in obedience to his commands. Not perfectly, that won't happen until the world to come, but truly, those who are born again have spiritual power to lead lives that are truly honoring to God. It's not just like some sort of you know, spiritual super saint that is capable of living a life of obedience. Because of what Jesus has done, all of us have the power to walk in obedience to God. It's really important that we recognize this, otherwise we'll get discouraged. We'll look at our faults and failures, fell into lust again, fell into irritability again, gave way to pride again. Be discouraged. Say, Lord, I'm always going to be this way. But if you recognize that your heart has been transformed by the Holy Spirit, that means there's hope. Yeah, you might have have fallen short. If so, ask God to forgive you. And continue to fight against sin and continue to pursue holiness because he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Right? You have the power to increasingly live for the glory of God. And that should encourage you when you fall short. When you fall short, confess, seek forgiveness, and press on because God himself empowers you to live for his glory. So you must be born again, first thing we see in this passage. Second thing to see is that the new birth inevitably manifests itself, makes itself known. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, it's important for us to recognize that the Greek word pneuma is the same word for both spirit and wind, right? That one word refers to both, can refer to either spirit or wind. And, and it's helpful for us to see that because it shows that there's a connection here being made by Jesus between spirit and wind. There's an analogy. Uh, you don't know where the wind comes from. You don't know where it goes. But you can nevertheless sort of hear the wind from its effects, right? When it blows by, you can experience the effects of the wind. Well, Jesus is saying the same thing holds true for the Holy Spirit. Human beings can't control the miracle of the new birth. The Holy Spirit distributes the new birth according to his sovereign pleasure. The wind blows where it wills. The Holy Spirit gives new life according to his sovereign will. We can't control that. It's mysterious. Nevertheless, though, where the Holy Spirit truly gives life, that life can be seen. There is fruit that comes from that life. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with A.W. Pink, Certainly not a household name, I'll grant you that. Uh, He was a uh, preacher and writer in the 20th century, and he came to faith. He grew up in a Christian household, but he only came to faith about 22, 23. Uh, Prior to his becoming a Christian, 
Uh, he was involved in, in the occult, in theosophy, uh, dabbling in dirt, dabbling in you know, contact with spirits, that kind of thing. Uh, he was making some progress in his theosophical circles. Um, he was also still living with his parents at the time. And when he would come home in the evening, his dad would uh, wait up for him and, and share a passage of scripture. And of course, Pink didn't want anything to do with that. One night he came home and he was hoping to write a speech that he was supposed to give at a, at a conference of theosophists. He came home, didn't want to talk about Jesus, of course, but his dad simply quoted a passage of scripture, quoted Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways to death. Yeah, Pink went into his room, and he was going to write his speech, but he couldn't get over that verse. It hounded him. It weighed on him. It distressed him. And his angst grew more and more until, until he finally yielded to God. Those who knew Pink described it this way. He told us he could no longer reject the God of the Bible and began to cry unto the Lord in prayer, convicted by the Holy Spirit and his power to bring a soul to see his lost condition and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. Quoted Proverbs of all books, Proverbs 14, and the Holy Spirit used that verse of Scripture to first trouble and convict Pink and then bring him to, to spiritual life in Jesus Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit is mysterious, not subject to human uh, controls. The Spirit blows where he wills, using even Proverbs 14 uh, to bring a person to life. I should note uh, that Pink changed the content of his speech, and when he showed up that Friday to give his talk at the Theosophical Society, he talked about Jesus and how they're all wrong. It, it was not well received. Uh, but, but that is an effect of the Holy Spirit's work. Uh, where the Spirit blows is a mystery. It's, it's God's sovereignty that determines where the new birth happens, but, there is, but you can see the effects of it. One implication uh, of that, by the way, is we should pray for the Holy Spirit to transform hearts and to open eyes. We can share Jesus with other people, like we can tell them the good news about Jesus, but we are powerless to impart the gift of new life. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so we need to pray that God would do that even as we share the message of Jesus with others. So where the Holy Spirit works is somewhat mysterious. He is the one who decides where he grants the new birth, but you can see the effects. Well, what are some of these effects of spiritual life? How can we tell that we have been brought from death to life? Well, one indication is that you love other believers. You love God's people. You are increasingly less focused on yourself and your own narrow priorities, and you increasingly delight in being with God's people, uh, want to help them grow spiritually, or to be helped to grow spiritually. Uh, you share your resources, your time, uh, your money and, uh, for their good. There is an increasing selflessness and orientation uh, towards other people and God's people specifically. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. How can you tell you know God and have been born again? You love his people. Life isn't just about you. It's very different from our very individualistic mentality in our world. I get home, close the driveway, you know, my time is my own. In contrast to that, a Christian who is born again delights in being with God's people. 
and looks for opportunities to serve them. Second sign of spiritual life. There, uh, life will be increasingly marked by obedience. Whereas prior to conversion, obedience to God's law seems suffocating, difficult, and undesirable, one mark of spiritual life is you increasingly desire to obey. God's laws and commands seem in their own way beautiful and life-giving. Uh, whereas maybe sexual purity prior to conversion may have seemed like a difficult and impossible ideal, after conversion, we say, Lord, yes, I, I want chastity and purity. I want to tell the truth. I want to walk in the light. I want to be generous with my money. The commands of God begin to be sweet to us. 1 John 3, 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has born, been born of God. And the third indication of spiritual life is that there is an increased appetite for God himself. As a psalmist in Psalm 42 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. There is a, a deepened appetite for God himself, uh, reflected in a deeper longing for prayer and communion with him, a life of worship and adoration. There's a deeper hunger for his word and uh, for praising him with his people. When Pink was converted, he started reading, I think it was about two years, uh, like 10 chapters of the Bible a day. Imagine that, 10 chapters a day. And he would carry around in his pocket one verse uh, that he would like reflect on throughout the day and meditate on and ask the Holy Spirit to give him more light. Uh, he memorized apparently the whole book of Ephesians this way. The point is when life came, there was a hunger for the word of God, a desire to feed on it and meditate on it. Is there a hunger for God in your life? Not just are you doing things for God, but is there a delight in God himself? Would you say that God is your treasure and the source of your deepest satisfaction? It's a sign of being born again. And note finally that Jesus Christ is the one through whom we have the new birth. Verses 9 through 14. Jesus is the one who purchases the new birth. So having explained all of this to Nicodemus, Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be? And while it might look like an innocent question Initially, it's clear from Jesus' response that this is not simply an innocent request for more information, but is instead a, a reflection of unbelief, even a rejection of what Jesus is saying. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus is saying, you're, you're not receiving what I'm telling you. You are rejecting it and responding with unbelief. And if you're doing this, Jesus says, with earthly things, you're rejecting earthly things, how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now, uh, it's not entirely clear what Jesus means by this distinction between earthly and heavenly. Earthly could refer to uh, the foundational teachings about how to enter God's kingdom, what he's been talking about. You have to be born again to enter God's kingdom. So that's the uh, earthly, and the heavenly would be more information about God's kingdom, something like that. Uh, it's also possible that earthly refers to that which we experience on earth, and heavenly refers to the sphere of the heavenly that we don't experience. Either way, Jesus says in verse 13 that he is uniquely qualified to reveal things earthly and heavenly because he has come from heaven. He is uniquely qualified to reveal spiritual truth uh, to mankind, the very truth that Nicodemus is rejecting. 
And in verses 14 through 15, in essence, he res- Jesus responds to Jesus' question in verse 9. How can these things be? How is it possible to be born again? Uh, Jesus alludes to an event in the history of Israel. Uh, God's people had rebelled against God, and God had judged them by sending poisonous snakes in their midst. Many people were bitten, and they were dying. And so Moses intercedes with God for mercy, and God says, here's what you do. You are going to erect a bronze snake. And everybody who looks at that snake is not going to die from the snake bite. So they do it, they put up the bronze serpent, and everybody who looks is saved. Well, Jesus says, in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up, just as that bronze serpent was lifted up. And of course, the language of lifting up in John refers to crucifixion, being lifted up on a cross. The same way, uh, Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just as the Israelites looked at the bronze serpent and lived, so all those who look at Jesus, who trust in him, will find life. They will live. By trusting in his work, they are given eternal life. Eternal life refers to the life of the world to come, which we can experience here partially and fully in that future world. And Jesus is saying, all those who believe in me will receive that life. All those who believe in me will experience the reality of the new birth. I'm the one through whom spiritual life is imparted. Those who trust in me will will be born again and experience this newness of life. Two implications of that. First of all, it's clear that it is only those who believe that have the new birth. Uh, There's a connection between believing and the new birth here. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ as their savior, as the one who delivers them from the judgment of God, those, those people and those people alone are born again and experience spiritual life. Second implication is uh, what Jesus deepens our understanding of his work. When we, th- when we think of Jesus' crucifixion for our sins, we tend to think of Jesus purchasing forgiveness for us. And praise God that's true, right? He does wash away our sins so we can be forgiven. But what he's saying here is that Jesus does more than that. He delivers us not just from the guilt of sin, but from the power. Uh, because he imparts spiritual life on the basis of his crucifixion, We can not only be forgiven, but we can actually be empowered to lead a new life. We can experience change, not just superficial change in our behavior, but change at the very core of our being. One of the things that most human beings desire, all perhaps, is change. Self-improvement. I've got to do better. I've got to be better. But typically when people try to change, they focus on externals, on behavior. So New Year's rolls around. I'm going to stop doing certain things, eating donuts or eating as many donuts, right? Say no to those actions, and I'm going to start frequenting the gym, uh, turning over a new leaf, be a better husband, father, whatever. I'm going to do different things. And typically, when we think about change, we think about change in behavior. But we need to understand that our behavior reflects what we are on the inside at the deepest level of our being. You do what you are. What you love at the deepest level of your being will be reflected in your speech and your conduct. So if you really want to change, it's not enough to just focus on your behavior. You need to be renewed at the deepest level of your being. And Jesus is saying that through his death and resurrection, that's possible. 
those who believe in him can experience change at the deepest level so that their life is increasingly transformed. If you want to change, and change in a way that's honoring to God, trust in Jesus Christ. He alone makes that kind of change possible. This is uh, really beautifully captured by uh, C.S. Lewis in his novel, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, in that novel, there's a, a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and the narrator tells us he almost deserved it. He almost deserved being called Eustace Clarence Scrub. Uh, well, there's a, there's a scene where Eustace finds a pile of gold, and he falls asleep on it, thinking greedy thoughts. When he wakes up, he discovers to his horror that he's a dragon and no longer a boy. That's what happens when you think dragonish, greedy thoughts on a pile of gold. Become a dragon. And his becoming a dragon obviously alienates him from his companions. He's lonely. He can't connect with people the way that he once could prior to his becoming a dragon. And he tries to change himself. He tries to tear off his dragon skin so he can become a little boy again. He succeeds in tearing off the first layer of skin, but discovers that there's a second layer of dragon skin. And he tears that off. More dragon. He tears that off. Still more dragon. There is dragon all the way down. And he can't, as Lewis puts it, undragon himself. Until, that is, he meets Aslan, the lion, the Christ character in the novel. And Aslan does for Eustace what Eustace can't do for himself. Aslan takes his terrible claws and rips off that skin from its roots. It's painful. Eustace thinks he's going to die. It's going to tear right into his very heart. Uh, so fierce is Aslan's work. But he discovers on the other side of it that he's no longer a dragon. He's a little boy again. Aslan was able to do for him what he couldn't do for himself. That's a picture of what Jesus is saying here. We can't change ourselves at the deepest level. We can tear off a layer or two, perhaps, but you can't undragon yourself. For that to happen, Jesus Christ has to renew your heart. It is a gift, it is a miracle, and it comes to those who trust in him. And that's the invitation to all of us today. Look to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for the spiritual life that enables you to become the person that God has called you to be. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, incapable of calling out even to God. But in love, you came and you gave your life for us. You shed your blood, both that we would be cleansed of our guilt and shame and made acceptable before God, and also that we might have life to live as we were meant to. Jesus, you are a great Savior. We love you and we thank you. Amen.